It's a privilege to be with you here this morning. Uh, he said that I've pastored long, or I've been in the ministry longer than he has existed, and that made me feel really old. But um, I chugged some Geritol back there really quick, and I'm ready to go now, so here we go. This first message, as I understand what he wanted me to do, is to talk about a problem that you have and a problem that missionaries have, a problem that pastors have, is the world obviously needs the gospel, but they could care less. The world needs the church, which tells them the gospel, but they oppose the church. Why is this? And in fact, one of the things that's, it's a dirty little secret in missions, but a lot of missionaries quit. They give up. A lot of pastors get discouraged and quit. Well, why? Well, because it can sometimes be very hard, and there's a lot of spiritual opposition. And as we're going to see this morning, the diagnosis precedes cure. If you're in any of what's called the helping professions, whether you're a a doctor, medical doctor, or a counselor of some kind, if you want to give a right diagnosis, you have to have, excuse me, a right cure, have the right therapy, you're going to have the need to write diagnosis. Would you go to a doctor and you said, I got these blinding headaches, and he checks you out and he says, you have athlete's feet, and here's some cream. I go, I don't think so. I mean, would you keep going back to him? He has seriously misdiagnosed the problem, and so this cream isn't doing my head any good. I put the cream all over my head, and it doesn't do me any good. So uh, it's important that we realize what's out there. Now, if you're a professing Christian, you supposedly already understand these things to some degree and believe them, but the very nature of the thing we're dealing with called sin makes, it has a filming, clouding, obfuscating, you're becoming very sleepy and you're going to forget all about this, and like Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're just going to walk on by and forget all this. This morning we're dealing with the problem we have to face is why the world doesn't want the gospel and why the world doesn't want us to tell them about the gospel, why the world doesn't want churches. If you're a human being, and I'm assuming most of you are, uh, if you're not, we can pray for you afterwards. But um, I can remember in college when I became a Christian, I was 21. I lived on that side of the street as a non-Christian for almost 21 years. I lived on this side of the street for many years, uh, 44 years. There we go, I was 65. And I can remember what it was like to be a non-Christian, to think and to feel, to look at the world. What's wrong with the world? Like, you know, when you're 14, it's like, I got a pimple on the end of my nose and that's the only thing I can think about. When I'm a 16, I go, hey, there's a world out there. You know, you can be very self-focused when you're young and as you start getting older, you realize there's a world out there I have to engage with. And what's wrong with this world? You go, the world's messed up. When I was a teenager and a college student in the 1960s, that's right, the Earth's crust had just hardened so you could walk on it. So uh, in the olden days... My grandchildren say, Grandpa, in the olden days, uh, in the 1960s, it was, a, it was a very different time than today. It was very radical. Uh, black guys and white guys had froze out to here. And uh, people wore their hair long, and people talked about a revolution, and there were riots on the campuses. The inner cities were burning. There was an unpopular war in Vietnam. Uh, the presidency was going through all kinds of problems. And... People were really wondering, was America going to stay together? What's wrong with the world? Well, as a college student, and I was attending a liberal arts school, which means you study a little bit of everything and try to put it all together, I was looking around at the world and reading these books, and, you know, the world's a messed up place. 
and you'd read different authors, and this man said, this is the problem with the world, and this is the solution. And, and he died a drunk at 30. Okay, well, and then you read this guy, and he's a philosopher, or he's, a, he's an author who pretends to tell you how to live, and he died of syphilis at 26. Or this guy was a famous poet, and he did this, but uh, he went insane at 40. And seriously, if you reading your books and reading the lives of these people, their lives never matched up to what they professed, never. And nobody seemed to have the answer of what's going on in the, in the, in the world. And one day, I had the sickening realization Whatever's wrong out there with the world, with them, it's in me, too. And that was a sad day. Now, I didn't call it sin, because if you call it sin, that means God's real and the Bible's real and judgment's coming, so we won't go there. So the world's, we'll just say the world's messed up and I'm messed up. And it didn't keep me from sinning, but I began to have a lot of guilt for what I knew I was doing wrong. And then, in God's kind, 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 kind providence, my sister went to a co-ed school. I went to one of the last all-male colleges in America, and my sister fixed me up on a blind date with a girl who was a committed Christian and who shared the gospel with me after a time. And uh, my life has never been the same. But I can remember the feeling of what's wrong with the world, and I'm, I'm not feeling so good myself. And if you're a Christian, there was a time when you didn't care about spiritual things, but God began to work in your life. You began to see that you had problems, and the problems came to something that was in you. It wasn't your spouse's fault. It wasn't your boyfriend or girlfriend's fault. It wasn't your coach's or teacher's fault. It wasn't your boss's fault. There was something in you that was wrong. You were wrong with God, and you were wrong with how he wanted you to live life. This morning is, in a sense, the only negative talk we're going to have. And it's negative because of the subject. But again, do you want to go to a doctor who nothing, does nothing but slap you on the back and glad hand you and say, you look fine to me, I feel terrible. Well, here, here's some more cream. Well, we did this before and it didn't do any good. Well, I want you to like me. Doc, I don't care whether I like you, I just want you to be accurate and help me. I mean, I remember when you play sports and you get injured and you go to the doctor. Does it hurt here? No. Does it hurt here? Oh, yes, right there. He says, well, good. You know, was he sadistic that he liked me to inflict, have pain and he wanted to find where the pain was? No, but it's necessary that you have to get the right diagnosis and find out what's exactly wrong before you can deal with what the solution is. And so this morning, we're going to be dealing with why the world is so messed up and why it's difficult to be involved in getting the courage to talk to your neighbor, talk to your mother, your father, a relative, talk to people at school or at work, or even think about going to into missions or some kind of work where you tell other people actively about Christ, it's difficult. But if you don't face this up front, you'll crash and burn pretty quickly. I tried to witness to three people and none of them were interested, so I guess I don't have the gift of evangelism. No. People don't want what you have and they don't want to hear what you're going to tell them. Why the world's so messed up and why I don't feel so good. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 23, so I hope you brought your Bible. And I bet you there's a pew Bible around if you don't have one. Genesis chapter 3 in the Old Testament. It's the saddest chapter in all of literature. It's the, every tragedy you can think of that's happened in the history of the world. From genocide to rape to murder to infanticide to child abuse to abortion to people just being mean and ugly to you. It's all here in Genesis chapter 3 in acorn form. 
What do I mean by acorn form? Well, all the children in this room, all little babies, are sinners in acorn form. As they grow, they grow into sapling sinners. And as they get older and older, they become oak tree sinners. But that's all right there in the DNA of the acorn. It just hasn't grown up yet. We're going to see this in Genesis 3. Hear the word of God. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid, and the man and his wife had hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, "Where are you?" And he said, "I, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and and I was afraid because I was naked and, and I hid myself." He said, "Who told you that you were naked?" Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, uh, the, the woman you, whom you gave to me to be with me, as she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, uh, the, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity. Let me stop here and say, enmity is not an everyday word, but it's, a, it's strong hatred. I'm your implacable enemy. I'm your enemy forever, and you're my enemy forever. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, this offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said... I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Thomas Watson the Puritan said, God made us out of the dust of the earth, and sin has made us proud dust. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living, and the Lord God made for Adam and Eve, for Eve excuse me, for Adam and for his wife, garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life 
and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. First of all, this is the saddest chapter of the Bible, and it's where all of the problems we face today come from. We're going to, read it. We're going to look at why our first parents blew it and why they rebelled against God, and then we're going to look at the fact that eight consequences flowed out of their rebellion. In this chapter, there is inferred or explicitly eight things terrible that happened to us because of what Adam and Eve did. And finally, we're going to see there's a glimmer of hope in this chapter that there is a God who is sovereign and holy and omniscient and loving, and he has a plan to undo how Adam and Eve have screwed up the planet. And it's involved in someone who is only vaguely referred to as the seed of the woman who is going to come. In the midst of man's destroying himself and destroying the planet, God has a sovereign plan, and we're going to be a part of that. So let's look at how this chapter is the saddest chapter in all of literature. You can read the worst things. You can watch TV. You can listen, read the newspaper. You can hear about sad things that have happened in history. But all of those things flow out of this chapter because the Bible says that all the sin of the human race, all of this failing, which I'm already using the word sin, but all of this failing, all of this misery, all this rebellion is tied up in our first parents. And it's, it's staggering. Every broken relationship, every divorce, every murder, every rape, every form of child abuse, every lie, every deception, every betrayal, every time anybody ever put you down or sinned against you or you sinned against them has its origin in this chapter. Again, it's important that we need to spend some time this first session reminding ourselves of what the Bible says negatively the problem is that we have to overcome in being excited about missions and sharing our faith even with our own children. You want to see your children come to Christ. Well, what's going on in them? Well, they're so sweet. They're just little kids. But if we forget they're acorn sinners and that they have the same seed in their heart that adult sinners have, then we will misinterpret what we need to do with our children. We'll be deceived by our own sentimentality. We won't even be faithful in ministering to our own children, let alone sending people to the far corners of the world. The world has given us many wrong answers. The world tries to analyze what's wrong. As I said, I was a liberal arts went to a liberal arts college. I was an English major, but I had to take something of everything. And if you listen to what different specialists say, what's wrong with the world? You talk to some biologists and they'll say, well, we've had incomplete evolution. We're still through natural selection, working our way to a better place, and we're getting rid of the, of the mutations, and the strong genes are, are, are forging ahead, forging ahead, and it's just incomplete evolution. We haven't evolved to our highest state. Okay. A sociologist, a sociologist is somebody who studies human beings in their group, where a psychologist might say, let's look inside your head. A sociologist say, what is society in aggregate? How do they act? And a sociologist might say, we suffer from culture lag. Our culture hasn't evolved far enough. And, well, who's to say how far is far enough? I mean, the most educated, sophisticated countries in 1939 were the United States, and Great Britain, and Nazi Germany, and Russia, and Japan. Let's see, what did they have? What were, the, what were they doing from 1939 to 1945? World War II. These weren't backward countries. These weren't people running around with 
you know, bones in their nose and throwing spears at each other. These had the most sophisticated scientists. They were doing rockets. They were working on the atomic bomb. They were doing all these things, but they were just working really hard at killing one another. These were not advancing society per se. Philosophers say we fail to love the truth. We fail to embrace wisdom. But whose wisdom? Have you ever read the lives of the philosophers and the people who would tell you very confidently how to live? If you doubt me, read the book called Intellectuals by Paul Johnson. And he says, here's a list of these top intellectuals of just the last 200 years who want to tell us how to live our lives. He says, before we turn over our country and our brains to these people and say, okay, we're going to live our lives the way you tell us to, let me ask a couple of questions, just two. Number one, how do they treat their family? And number two, how do they treat their friends? These people were terrible. Many of them were monsters. One man had babies and just gave them up for adoption because he wanted to have intercourse with his wife but didn't want to have the babies. And so he just fathered all these children and gave them up for adoption. And he was going to want Jean-Jacques Rousseau is going to tell us how to live. I don't think that's the way I want to live. I don't think he would be good for society. Psychologists tell us what's going on inside of us, what's going on in our psyche, our suke. But you know what the one problem with that? Do you know, that's another dirty little secret of the psychologist. Currently, it's, it's this old data, there's over 1,500 different models, different theories of what psychological wholeness is. So there's 1,500 different ways of looking at the human psyche and what should be right with it and what's wrong with us. They can't even agree on what a normal human being is. The Bible says, in an unflattering way, there's something in each of us. It's a little three-letter word in English called sin. And this sin thing makes us messed up. It's ruined the planet. It's ruined every human heart. And apart from a supernatural work of God, and I don't take that word lightly, a supernatural, that means above nature, above what anything but he could do naturally, unless there's this supernatural invasion from outside of us by God, each of us is doomed and our planet is doomed. Think back to when you were first started school. Your parents try to protect you. They try to shield you from the difficulties of life. But you start bumping into other kids and you discover there are mean kids. Huh. Why are those kids mean to me? I didn't do anything. And a little bit later, you discover that this person professed to be my friend and they betrayed me. What's that all about? And then if you begin to have a bump of self-awareness, you go, you know, my family isn't perfect. My dad's not perfect and my mom's not perfect. And if I stand and think about it in front of the mirror, I'm not so perfect either. In the, in the early 1900s, before World War I, the, the mindset in the West was that because of the Industrial Revolution, all the products we were inventing and the steam locomotive and and electricity and telephone and telegraph and all these things, we are ushering in virtually a millennium. We are now going to see the human race reach its apex. The 20th century is going to be the most wonderful century in the history of the world. But there's still a couple of things that are messing us up. What's wrong with the world that's keeping us from being what we can be? And so this London newspaper had this um, contest and they took all these letters the English Christian named G.K. Chesterton sent in a letter and said, Dear sirs, in answer to your question, what is wrong with the world? The answer is, I am, sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. Now, what he was saying to anybody who cared to think about it was, 
hey, I'm one of then probably five and a half billion sinners, and I'm polluting the world. I'm messing up the world. I'm part of the problem. And if you multiply it now by 7.4 billion people, 7.4 billion sinners are going to mess up the planet. You've never talked to a normal person. You've never talked to a person who wasn't defiled, degraded, debauched, twisted, bent by sin. And part of what sin does, even right now as I'm speaking on sin, sin is like something that lives under the sofa or under your bed, and it doesn't want to be dragged out into the light and it scurries back. And It likes to stay in the dark. It doesn't like to be revealed. So it has a cloaking, masking, obfuscating fogging, smoke-filled kind of, and don't get a good beat on it. Here's how you know how sin works. You catch your child lying. Not that any of you would lie, but you have a child who lies. And you confront the child with lying, and the child goes, goes, I'm not a liar. I just didn't tell the truth. Wait, are you a lawyer? Uh, What does it mean not to tell the truth? That means to tell a lie. But I don't want to be acknowledged as a liar, so I'll call it by something else that doesn't sound so bad. And so you'd be surprised if you listen to people talk how often we even speak about what we do wrong in terms that aren't really accurate so we can minimize what's really going on here. Sin does not like to be exposed. Psychologists call it being in denial. And that's not if you're from Chicago and say, hey, there's a river in Egypt called denial. Okay, no, that's not the Nile River. It's denial meaning it's not true. That isn't really what I'm like. But sin puts every person in the planet in a certain sense of denial, saying, this is not true of me. But God is gracious. But let's look at, before we get to the good news, we still have to spend some more time in the bad news, so bear with me. Let's look at what our first parents did and in the text here. So keep your finger in John, excuse me, in X, Genesis 3. Our parents were in a perfect environment. There was no sin yet. There was no weeds in the garden. There's no chiggers, there's no no noceums, there's no gnats. It's a perfect environment, so they can't blame their environment, which they do anyway. But let's look at their sin. In Genesis 3, the the serpent tells Eve a bald-faced lie. You will not die. I don't care what God says. He's just wrong. You will not die. Sin does not have that big a price tag. You can sin. You can disobey God with impunity. Nothing's going to happen to you. It's not true. You will not die. It's a bald-faced lie. And sometimes people tell big lies. In fact, we learned during World War II and its aftermath that Heinrich Himmler, who was the propaganda, uh, he and Hermann Goebbels were the propaganda masters for Adolf Hitler, they said they had the big lie technique. If you tell a big enough lie, loud enough and long enough, after a while people would just be, okay. It goes against everything I've always thought, but okay. And they give in to it. You just have to persist in telling the big lie. And the serpent begins with telling the big lie. And then what he does is he comes in behind that and he says, you know, your problem is you don't understand that God's not your friend and he's not on your side and he does not have your best interest at heart. Why? For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Man, isn't that just like him? He's withholding the good stuff from you because he's jealous, I guess, of his own possessions. But he knows that if you eat of it, you'll have your eyes open 
and you'll be like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. He didn't tell them they would experientially find out what evil was and its polluting influence, but he's insinuating, he's, he's in a sense like a person sharing gossip. Hey, did you know that, that God really doesn't like you and he really doesn't? No, really? And Adam and Eve fell for it. They had a perfect relationship with God, a perfect environment, but they believe the lie that God is not good and he's holding out on you. The lie was that only in rebelling and doing your own thing and disobeying God can you be happy. And some of you today who are sitting here who aren't Christians, you may or may not believe what I'm saying at this point, but if you're still of the mindset that, you know, only in doing my own thing and rebelling against God can I really be happy, can I really be the person I want to be that I need to be, it shows that you're still in the state of being deceived by the devil, that God doesn't have your best interest at heart, and if you would submit to him and not disobey him but submit to him, your life would be diminished, smaller, cramped, ruined, but if you rebel and do your own thing, then you can be happy. The Bible says that's a lie. If you have that mindset, then you're still believing the lie. What were the eight dire consequences that are going to flow out of this? The consequences are so grave that the Bible says you cannot fix yourself. You can't help yourself out of it. You can't save yourself. You can't turn over a new leaf. You can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can't make undo what sin has done to you. It's so devastating. It's so thorough. I mean, to be a a small analogy, someone has a 12-gauge with birdshot, and they fire it off at you from about 18 inches away. It does massive damage to your body in all kinds of places. And and you go, I got a Band-Aid. Right. And that's going to help how? Well, in a more cataclysmic way, in a more fatal way, sin has devastated the whole planet, and nobody can save themselves, let alone anybody else. What are the eight dire consequences that flow out of this? Number one, sin has left us at enmity with God. I used that word earlier, enmity from God. What does that mean? God, you're my enemy, and I'm your enemy, and I don't want to have anything to do with you. Just leave me alone. That's what you call active enmity, active hatred and rebellion. Some of us are more passive. God, I'm not into fighting and stuff. Just leave me alone, and I'll leave you alone. Just let me live my life. I don't want anything to do with you. I'm not a fighter. I'm not an angry person. Just I don't want to have anything to do with you. The psychologist will call that passive-aggressive. In fact, in families, you'll see it. I'm not going to talk to you for two days. and It's fighting by turning off, by denying engagement, by punishing the other person by failing to really engage with them. And a passive-aggressive person doesn't like to say, okay, let's go to -to toe-to-toe and argue. A passive-aggressive person will say, no, I'm just not going to talk to you for two months until you finally cave in and go along with what I want. That's their way of fighting. Other people are saying, well, let's go toe-to-toe and argue and see who wins. But I'm sure you're much more spiritual than that. You would never do those things, but you probably have heard of people like that. Anyway, mankind by nature hates God. R.C. Sproul did a great job of showing that in a video on the holiness of God, and one of those videos was called God in the Hands of Angry Sinners. What did our planet do when it could get its hands on God? How did they treat Jesus? Were they all down there going, let it happen, come on down, we're waiting for you, we want to love you and serve you and worship you? 
Well, no, that didn't happen. And he would, you know, everything about his life was difficult. And when they could actually get their hands on him, what did they do with God the Son? They killed him. Why? He didn't do anything wrong. But he wrecked the curve every day. I don't want this perfect person around all the time. He makes me feel nervous and uncomfortable. He's always perfect, and I don't want someone like that around. And he says these words from God that we don't like, and it was God in the hands of angry sinners. God is no longer viewed as our friend and our benefactor as it was before the fall. Now he's my enemy and my, my judge. Again, I was 21 when I became a Christian. I can remember back thinking about God in my B.C. days. I never thought of God as my best buddy, as my friend, as my savior, my intimate. He was always out there and had a vague sense of him being a judge. I never even liked to think about it very much. I didn't think about God much in my B.C. days. Non-Christians don't. So what sin has done, according to this passage, is it's left us at enmity with God. He's my sworn enemy. I'm his sworn enemy. And that alienation, that enmity, is where the whole, everybody in the planet lives apart from God's grace. Number two, sin has so stained us and polluted us and defiled us that we're unfit to be in the presence of God. What do I mean? Think if you think of your God for a minute. You go, I think that way all the time. No, I don't mean in the sense that... I mean, many of us do. Before you're a Christian, you think you're God. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. You would wake up every morning. What do I want to do today? How are other people going to serve me and help me get my agenda done? Hey, I'm angry at you because I'm frustrated because you're not letting me get my agenda done. And my agenda is supreme and the whole world should serve my agenda. So, so yes, in many ways we were like gods. If we're God, the real God who really exists, who is holy, 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 why would we want to stink up eternity with all these polluted sinners in our presence? You know, naive people, people who don't think very deeply go, well, God just be big-hearted and just bring us on into heaven. Come on in. I'm, I'm feeling big today. You guys just come to heaven the way you are. Wow, it really stinks here because everybody I've just brought to heaven is a polluted, stinking, defiled sinner. Thought, word, and deed, ambitions, aspirations, it's all defiled by sin. Eternity would be defiled. It reminded me of a situation years ago where a friend of mine had a friend who had a semi-truck and he was moving his things from Atlanta to Minneapolis. And he packed his own truck and the last thing he did was a great heartache. He threw a car battery on with the caps not covered and he threw a bicycle chain in there. And the bicycle chain came down and hit the two um, electrodes on the car battery and started a fire. And he gets a phone call from the north suburbs of Atlanta from the truck driver. Guys, flag me down. The rear end of my truck was on fire. And so he opened up the rear end of his truck, and everything that was combustible in the truck was on fire. Now think of everything that you own. Let's see, everything that has cloth in it, like all your clothes and all your furniture, and all the wood burning, and all the plastic was melting and smelled like burnt plastic. So he got his fire extinguisher, and he put everything out, and he said, I'll go ahead and take it to Minneapolis anyway. Well, my friend had to stop in Chicago on his way to Minneapolis and didn't beat the truck there. So the friendly neighbors offloaded everything in the truck and put it in his house. So now you come home and your whole house is a stinking, smelling mess. 
burnt plastic, burnt furniture, burnt clothes. Just It was a mess. They meant well, but it was a mess. Now, if that's repugnant to you and I at a small level, how do you think God feels about polluting heaven with stinking, defiled sinners? He's not going to do that. Everything about us, the Bible says, even our best deeds, all of our good deeds are like so many filthy rags, Isaiah 64, 6. Everything is touched and besmirched and stained and has a film on it and a residue of sin. And God says, I'm not going to change my nature and just be surrounded by sin. That's why I sent my son to deal with his sin problem. But I'm not going to deal with it by just saying, well, come on, you sinners, I'll take you into heaven in your polluted state. Part of what God's going to be dealing with is he's going to deal with man's pollution, but then he's going to be dealing with man's lack of righteousness, lack of a positive standing before God. I'll come back to that. Think of it this way. Let's say that you hear that, um, I'll use an ex- friendly uh, volunteer from the audience. Okay, I'll take Nick. Um, Nick and Felicia decide they're going to build a swimming pool in the backyard. And so they contract with a company and get permission. And they have, a, and this is a large swimming pool. It's 30,000 gallons of fresh water. Nice big pool. And, uh, but in Nick's neighborhood, uh, they have septic tanks, and they didn't watch where they put the pool in relation to the septic tank. And the ground was a little separate, saturated around the septic tank, and a little bit started bubbling up out of the ground. In North Georgia, in our county, everybody has septic tanks, and sometimes they bubble up out of the ground. Anyway. So, and and it started to leak over, and it came into a corner of the pool, and just about a cup of raw sewage went into that pool. Now, if you know anything about water, it quickly dispersed, so you can't even see it. It's entirely in every molecule that's in this entire pool. There's 30,000 gallons of fresh water and only one cup of raw sewage. How many would want to go swimming in that pool? Let the tape show that nobody raised their hand. Um, how many of you would like to drink out of that pool? Everybody hunched down their seats and nobody raised their hand. It's gross. Okay. Well, sin has done more than one simple cup of raw sewage. And if a cup of raw sewage and 30,000 gallons of fresh water nauseates you, what do you think what sin has done to every facet of our being to God? It's repugnant to God. If, if sewage turns our stomach, why do we not think that our sin, which is filmed and filed every part of our being, isn't nauseous to God. He's going to be dealing with it, but that's our problem. Sin has left us defiled, and we can't undefile ourselves. In fact, my next point, number three, sin has enslaved us and made us its master. You know, we're like, we so are so stupid in our sinful state. Sin not only defiles us, but it makes us really stupid. And we go, sin goes, you're your own person. I'm my own person. I do my own thing and nobody tells me what to do. I do my own thing and nobody tells me what to do, except sin does. The serpent deceived Adam and Eve, and they were believing the lie against God. And no, following God isn't the way to freedom. Rebellion is the way to freedom. Doing your own thing. I mean, after all, I'm a creature. Right. But here's an omnipotent, omniscient, all-knowing, all-power, all-love, all-wisdom. Nah, I don't want that. I did it my way. You know, the, you can Elvis's version or whoever's version you want to listen to. The theme song on the jukebox in hell is I did it my way. And that's what sin has done to us. Sin has enslaved us. 
We've become sinaholics. We can't stop sinning. I, I, you know, we've, if you preach in one church a long time, I was in my church for 31 years, if you know some of the people growing up, they technically know the right answer. Some of you younger people here, that's everybody under 65, uh, some of you young people here, uh, you know the right answers. You've listened to it. Yeah, the Bible says I'm a sinner. I'm blah, blah, blah. And so far you're saying you haven't really said anything a whole lot new this morning. Okay, if you, but you, don't, you never feel like a sinner. You never think of yourself as really morally guilty. You don't feel the guilt and condemnation of your sins. And you think the Bible kind of exaggerates, and the preachers exaggerate our human condition. Let me ask you to do this. If you don't think you're a sinner, I just give you a one short 24-hour test. You don't have to do it the rest of your life, just one day. Don't sin for one day. I want you, the Bible says, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor is yourself. On these two commandments hang all the laws and the prophets. So just go out there and just for one day, love God with all of your being and love your neighbor as you already love yourself, just for one day. We go, well, I'm not sure I can do it for an hour, actually. But if you can't do it for an hour or a day, that shows that something has you in its grip and that something which you can't overcome is what the Bible calls sin. I've, I've given challenge to people, and only two people have ever taken me up in this challenge, and they're both junior high boys. They were either kind of rash or gutsy or both. But I said, if you want to know why Christianity is true and why you need a Savior who's not yourself, Jesus Christ, do this. Go to your room tonight and hum, humble yourself. And a good way to do that is get on your knees by your bed and say, God, would you show me my sin? Would you show me my sin? I knew a woman who was a rebel. She rebelled against her father. She grew up in a Christian home. Her dad's a professor at a well-known seminary and a leading Christian. And she knew all the right answers, and she got to be 18. And she goes, Mom and Dad, I'm out of here. I don't want to live this way. I don't want to live the Christian life. I want to live for myself. And she goes out into the world, and she moves in with a guy, and then she leaves him and moves in with a drug dealer. And then she leaves him and moves in with another guy, and she's doing drugs and drinking and partying and doing all the things that parents are, ah. And she's living this way, and it's terrible. So her parents are praying for her like crazy, like you, like you would pray for your child. And one day the girl says, you know, I, I know better than this. I, I can do better than I'm doing, just living for drugs and partying. So she got her act together, took an entrance exam, and got admitted into, Harvard, excuse me, into Stanford University, which is the Harvard of the West Coast. So her parents go, she's pulling her life together. She's turning over a new leaf. Maybe she's going to turn to the Lord. So she moves to Palo Alto, California, finds a job in the newspaper for a, a bartender. She gets a job as a bartender and moves in with the bar owner. Her dad was on his way to Africa on a preaching trip to a country that was very dangerous. And uh, he was afraid he might not come back. And he called his daughter to say, I'm leaving. I have a premonition that this could be a very dangerous trip. And I didn't want to take you to heaven. It's just a memory. So I'm pleading with you one more time to consider Christ. And she said, I blew up on the phone. She says, in my whole family, I was the only ranter and raver and yeller. And everybody else was calm. And I would yell and scream. And I kind of went off on my dad, and he let me calm down. And they said, I know that you can't make yourself a Christian, but would you just do this one thing? Would you ask God if he's real to show himself to you? She says, okay. 
to please you. I'll ask God to show me if he's real. And she hung up. And, but she did pray that prayer a couple of days later. And she said, what happened was not what I expected. God did not reveal himself to me. He revealed me to me. For the first time in my life, I'm in my late 20s, and I see what a horrible sinner I am. I see that so much of everything I do is tainted with my sin. And it came to a head one day on campus at Stanford when I was interfacing with some of my friends. And as I walked away from that conversation, I saw the snide, ugly, proud, wicked things that I just said in passing to my friends. She said, oh, God, I am such a miserable, wicked person. That's why I need a Savior. But until you get the right diagnosis and embrace the diagnosis, you're going to think all this is a bunch of baloney. You don't need it. She did become a Christian, and you can watch her testimony on YouTube. Years ago, a woman in my church, husband left her. It was a tragic case, and he was later excommunicated for his unrepentant adultery. She was sharing one day her heartache to one of the other elders in the church, and she said, this has just been an awful time. And he says, I know. I remember when my wife and I, she left me for another man, and he said, that was the second worst day in my life when she walked out and moved in with someone else. The woman said, that was the second worst day in your life. What could have been worse than that? He said, oh, about six, six, day, six weeks and one day later, God showed me my own heart. That was the worst day of my whole life. You don't really know what's in your heart. And sin is much greater power than you realize, much deeper than you realize, much more pervasive than you realize. Jeremiah 13 says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Is an African man or a or European man going to change his skin? Is a leopard going to change his coat? No. Then neither can you do good who are accustomed to do evil. It's not within you to change yourself. And the people that you're trying to minister to think they're fine and they don't have a problem. And would you leave them alone with the Savior stuff? Number four, sin has left each of us spiritually dead spiritually dead and unresponsive to God and we don't care anything about any of this. If you're reading in the New Testament and the Apostle Paul is talking to the, Thess- excuse me, the Ephesians and he's telling the Ephesians and the Ephesians were a people who were involved in the occult. When, they, when a bunch of them came to Christ, part of their repentance was they brought all their tarot cards and their little paraphernalia out and they made a pile And Dr. Luke says it was worth 50,000 days' wages, the crud that they had accumulated out of their homes involved in the occult. This is what Paul says to these people about how Christ was gracious to them. Ephesians 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all... Me, Paul, we all, me, Paul, you Ephesians, all of us, once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out desires of our body and our mind, and were by nature, by who we were, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul says, I'm not different from you. This is what sin has done to all of us. It's killed us. We're spiritually dead. Now you go, I'm not spiritually dead. I'm sitting here listening to you. But you can be spiritually dead and and listening to me with your ears 
but you know we're three-dimensional people at least we have a body with our senses to apprehend the physical world around you you can feel the texture of the chair you can feel your bible you can feel your handheld monitor you whatever and you can feel things you have your five senses you have your mind to engage the world of ideas but the bible says if you until god supernaturally gives you the new birth you are spiritually dead how would that work Right now, there are radio and TV and microwaves and all kinds of things going through this room. And if this was 30 years ago, before the invention of handheld devices and microwave and cell phones were prominent, you'd say, no, I don't believe you. I said, the reason is, is because we don't have something here to access these things. But as soon as you bring something here that can receive these waves, like you're holding in your hands, many of you, hey, there really are in this room. I can really access these things. Well, the Bible says that when you spiritually died, you're cut off from God. And even though he may be working in your midst, you have no ability to discern it. Have you ever read the Chronicles of Narnia in the last battle and read it to your children? And the children are stepping into eternity. They're stepping into a world with blue skies and puffy white clouds and green grass. But they're in a stable with these dwarves, and the dwarves are huddled. It's dark and cold. There's a little charcoal fire, and the dwarves are scrunched down the ground, warming their hands, and they go, we're practical men. Nobody pulls the wool over our eyes. We're realists. And the children are stepping by them and stepping into eternity, and the dwarves don't see any of it. That's what sin does to you. You're spiritually dead. You have no capacity to recognize what's going on around you. I had a man come to me one time and he said, your church is full of more hypocrites and fakes than any church I've ever been in my life. I go, well, thank you. Um, <laughs> and uh, welcome to the club. Um, I said, well, I'm interested why you'd say that. He goes, did you ever go to these small group meetings on Wednesday night where people will read, when you talk about the Bible and stuff, and, and then they pray and they talk about Jesus like they love him and know him or something. I go, he goes, how full of gas is that? And I said, that's all you got? He goes, yeah, I mean, they talk like they really know him and they really love him. I said, well, newsflash, maybe he is real and maybe they love him, but you're spiritually dead and this seems like the world's greatest farce to you. Maybe the problem isn't that they're fakes. Maybe the problem is that you're spiritually clueless and you interpret them watching them as being, they have to be faking because there is no God. There is nobody you can talk to. He's not real and so why should you love him? He's not there. I said, I think the problem, I didn't, wasn't animated like this, but and one-on-one just doesn't go over well. Um, if you really see what's going on here, you're the problem, not these people. Jesus Christ really came to this earth. He really did rise from the dead. He's really alive. He's really sitting at the right hand of the Father. And these people do know, do know him, and they do love him, not perfectly, but really. And you're spiritually dead, and this is all a bunch of hoo-ha to you. At the end of Genesis 3, we read an odd passage that said, and you may have never thought of it, but it says, God stationed two cherubim, was it seraphim or cherubim? Thank you, cherubim. He knows his bims, so he knows which. The cherubim were there, and there were two angelic creatures, and there was a giant flaming sword, symbolic probably of God's justice. You're not going back into the Garden of Eden, and you're not going to eat of the tree of eternal life. I'm not going to let sin go on forever. You are cut out from Eden and you're helpless to save yourself. As Ephesians 2 says, you're without hope, you're without God, and you're in the world. 
1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God because they're spiritually understood, and you cannot rightly appraise them. Before I was a Christian, 2 and 2 was 5, 2 and 2 was 7, 2 and 2 was 90, but it was never 4, spiritually speaking. Non-Christians can't make things fit because they don't have a right appraisal of what they're looking at. It says, we misunderstand. I was talking to a man who was checking out Christianity, and he was going to have an experiment. And I said, I want you to read the Gospel of John twice, and then I want you to read the Book of Romans twice. But I want you to pray every time before you start to read and pray this prayer. Lord, this book says that I have a bias and a blindness towards spiritual things, and that if you aren't merciful, I won't get it. Would you overcome what, what your Word says about me my, the down drag of sin, and would you help me to understand this book? And two weeks later, he came to me, and he had become a Christian because he saw himself for the first time, and God gave him the grace to make two and two into four and to get it. So here we are, powerless to change ourselves, spiritually dead. Number five, sin has alienated us from ourselves. We're not just alienated from God, but you have a problem with yourself. Because apart from God working in your life, you don't have a clue as to who you are. Because you're a creature. What does that mean? Something, someone else created you. You didn't create yourself. Your parents didn't totally create you. They were given grace. They were given the ability. But apart from God, your parents could have not had children. God created you. And by definition, you're a dependent creature. And you're dependent upon the Creator to tell you what's what. Who are you? What's the grand scheme of reality? Where's history been? Where's history going? Why are you here? What's your purpose in life? You can't come up with that on your own unless the Creator shows you. And if you're cut off from the Creator, then you're cut off from understanding yourself. One of the things that's revealed in Genesis 3 is these people started being disoriented as to who they were. Wow, we're naked. This is no fun. Well, they've always been naked. But now there was a shame and there was a sinfulness and a lewdness to their being naked and made themselves coverings of fig leaves. We're more sophisticated. We wear different kinds of clothes and do other things to cover ourselves. But apart from grace, we're alienated from ourselves. And one of the things I saw when I first became a Christian is no wonder that my life is messed up because here's the creator. Here's the designer with the blueprint, the Bible. Here's the master builder, Christ, who wants to come and rebuild my life from nothing. And I go, eh. Well, no wonder my life is messed up. My great fear as a junior in college was that I would graduate. Why? Because you've got to do something with your life. I had no clue what to do with my life. I didn't want to just pour my life down a rat hole. I don't want to live 65 or 75 years for nothing and die. I mean, is your whole purpose just to fill up time, mark time? I mean, I know guys who got scared to death in college because they live for the weekends and the party's coming. But after a couple of years like that, you know what? Every weekend started looking the same. It wasn't the Monday through Friday afternoon drudge. It was the weekend drudge. The party was over because every weekend looked the same. My God, what is there to live for? Well, just when you come to the end of I can't figure out who I am, God breaks into your life and shows you, I made you. You're a dependent creature. If you're not in a right relationship with me, you will never know who you are. You'll never know what you were created for. You'll never find the means to happiness in this life or the next. 
you know, really it's God's grace there's any happiness. It's God's grace that any of us stay married more than a few months. It's God's grace to us that two sinners ever get together and are at each other's throat all the time. And sin has so alienated us from ourselves that you've never met a normal person. We all have psychological problems. Some of us more obviously than others, like me. But seriously, you have never met a normal person. The word perverse doesn't mean sicko. It means twisted. And sin has twisted each one of us. You've never met a 100% normal person. Sin has left us all bent and twisted. And God rebuilds our lives, but will never be perfect even in this life, which is why we yearn for heaven and a re- redo on our body and a new heavens and a new earth in a physical physical body that's been reconstituted and is without sin. But sin just hasn't alienated me from myself. Number six, I'm plugging along here, almost done. Sin has alienated us from one another. What did Adam and Eve do? It was very clear. Um, the woman you gave me, it's really kind of your fault through this woman, but the woman you gave me, she's the one who messed this whole thing up. Uh-uh, it's not my fault. It was this serpent dude over here, and I don't know why I was talking to a snake in the first place, but it's not my fault. It's never my fault. It's always somebody else's fault. But it's never my fault. It's your fault. My life is messed up because of you. That's how consistently we view our alienation. And we blame shift. You know, my mother used to beat me with a toothbrush, so now I rob banks. It's that kind of logic. It's like, what does that have to do with anything? But I will not accept blame, and it's always your fault. Have you ever counseled couples with marital problems? Time out, you in this corner, you in this corner, okay, one at a time, and it's always, this person's a complete idiot and a total wastrel, and I'm just so, I don't even know why I married them. I said, well, are you an idiot? I mean, I've asked people, are you an idiot? No. Are you really stupid? No. So you married a person that had no good traits, but all bad traits, and you, you willfully married them? Uh, well, I didn't realize how bad they are when I first married them. This person obviously has no clue as to their own heart, and they're bl- putting all the blame and all this wrong when they're married on the other person. So that gives me a clue that both people have equal huge problems. Men treat women badly. Women manipulate men in return. Everybody sins against everybody else. Divorce, spousal abuse, child abuse, bullying, rape, murder, genocide, they all flow from the sin of Eden. And I told a girl once at a cocktail party, my son won a trip to this resort, and he wasn't married, and so he could take a significant other, so he took his dad. And so we went around at at this conference together and had a great time blowing the company's money. And (laughs) they gave us $500 spending money a person at this resort. It was big time. When you have a finger bowl for breakfast, I go, what is this? The waitress said, that's a finger bowl to wash your fingers in before you eat breakfast. I go, I almost drank it, you know. And, uh, and she goes, don't worry. Nobody here, whoever comes here, ever has finger bowls for breakfast except when they come here. But we were standing around at a cocktail party sipping our Cokes and talking to this one gal from England who my son knew from working in this um, IT company. And... She said, oh, that's coin that you brought your dad. Um, what do you do? I said, I'm a pastor. I'm a pastor of a church. She goes, oh, that's nice. How'd you become a pastor? I'm going, well, you asked me. So I started to share my testimony. 
And I, I decided I would get her, I said. I told her the story about how I saw my sinfulness and the world's messed up and I messed up. And I said, ma'am, let me tell it to you straight. Before I was a Christian, if it ever came down to you and me, it was always going to be so much about me and not about you. She turned to her boyfriend. She said, did you hear what he just said? You need to listen to this man. But that was it. In a fallen world, we're alienated from one another. I'm not about to deny myself for you. Fooey on you. So you have to get out the ship. I'm going to get off the ship. It's all about me. We're alienated from every other person on the planet. In fact, it's just tragic. This Genesis 3 is the most tragic chapter. All the heartaches and tears that you've ever shed for all the terrible things that have happened to us in our lives. Come back to this chapter. Our first parents doomed us to these things. And the Bible explicitly says all this stuff's going to flow out of here. Number seven, briefly, the Bible says that sin has alienated us from the environment. It took until probably the 20th century. But did you see here the ecological crisis? The ground, the, the, the environment is messed up now. It's not going to produce things magically and fruitfully. You're going to have thorns and thistles. By the sweat of your brow, you're going to have to fight off things in the environment. No seams, mosquitoes, chiggers, all the things that are wrong with the environment, so to speak, what the Bible calls the creation, is because of our sin. And Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that the whole planet, all the plants and animals, are groaning in some inarticulate way right now under the curse of sin because all the crud they have to endure in killing and being eaten and fleeing and all this stuff is all because of our sin. And Paul says it's not until the final installment when God finishes his work of taking his adopted children to heaven, and he does a redo in the heaven and earth, and it's a pristine planet, and all the killing and eating and fighting is over with. The whole planet has been ruined by our sin. And so what the 20th century goes, we found out there's an ecological crisis. Genesis 3 said there was going to be an ecological crisis. And the last thing is, number eight, and this is the scariest thing, and you know, if Nick and I were wonderful people, just assuming we were wonderful people, and we came to visit you at your house, and we kept your number on speed dial on our phone, so anytime we could call you and check on you, and we would come to your house day or night, and we, we would play with the, youth, with the kids in the youth group. We'd play, we'd play with the little children. We would do, we would do everything. God, those guys are great, man. But if we didn't tell you this one thing, you would hate us on Judgment Day. What's this one thing? The number one thing a faithful pastor has to do is to teach his people to flee from the wrath to come. Sin has left us liable to the wrath to come. And hurtling toward planet Earth is not an asteroid that's going to send us back to the age of the dinosaurs. It's not some meteor that's going to go off course and wreak havoc upon the planet. The thing that is for sure hurtling toward this planet, so to speak, is the fact that God has pronounced judgment on every human being. Every human being. Man, boy, Woman, girl. Genesis 3.16. Everybody knows that verse. So God so loves the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever should, what, believe in Him might not perish but have everlasting life. Oh, we love that verse. We just don't read it in context. Two verses later. Whoever believes in Christ is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. 
people don't go to hell because they don't believe in Christ. People go to hell because they're sinners. And believe it, not believing in Christ is just one more sin to tack on to all their other sins. God's already pronounced judgment on the planet. It says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Judgment has already been pronounced. The bailiff just hasn't taken you out to judgment yet. And then a few verses later it says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son, repent and believe the gospel, does not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It's already over your head and God's saying, okay, it can fall now. I was talking to a student at McDonald's. He had said he wanted to meet. We sit down to meet and he starts giggling and goofing around and acting like he's going to blow off the whole time. And I said, how can I wipe the giggle off his face? I said, uh, if, I said, the Bible says that you're in a burning building and that you can't stand in the hallway and kind of giggle and goof around and dither and not, never make up your mind because you're in a burning building and the building will burn down around you you have to make a decision. He goes, I'm not in a burning building. John chapter 3. I read to you John 3.16. Look at these two other verses. God's already pronounced judgment on you, son. And if less you turn to Christ, your doom is sealed. It's done. He's already pronounced judgment. The question is, how can I get out of judgment? And that's only in Christ taking your place, substituting for you for the judgment. It did take the smile off his face. He didn't turn to Christ then. I don't know if he ever did. I'll conclude by just saying this. There's a glimmer of hope which we're going to look at tomorrow and which I know that you're faithfully told by your pastor. In Genesis 3.15, there's the first glimpse of the gospel. God is going to send someone who is just called the seed here. The seed of the woman is going to be Jesus Christ. And you're going to follow this whole story of the seed all throughout the Old Testament. And you get to Isaiah chapter 53. And there's someone who is amazing and and if you read Isaiah 53, it's written, written 800 years before Christ. And it's a perfect description of Jesus Christ. 800 years before he came. And then he comes on the scene. And John the Baptist is talking to his followers. and Behold, God's Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes... The seed has come. He's here. If Jesus Christ is, your, is not your Savior, you have no hope. And everything I've said is still true about you. But if you're a Christian and God's taken all these things and dealt with them, for Christ's sake, you can understand why the world is going to have difficulty listening to you, why when you send missionaries to some country, people aren't at the airport going, we've been waiting for you, come on over, um, and why you have to persevere in, in witnessing to your children, persevere in witnessing to your relatives, your classmates, your co-workers, persevere in supporting missions, because all these impediments, these eight things... Every person on the planet is blasted with them. And unless God works in supernatural grace and power, they won't have anything to do with your message. But because God's greater than our sins, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And we're going to be excited tomorrow, I think, when we see a passage which says that God has told his son, it's too small, it's too light a thing that I save a bunch of Jews by what you're going to do in the cross. I'm going to give you the nations. I'm going to give you the nations. And we're sitting here today and this weekend because God's promise to his son is true. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we've gone through a bunch of 
really hard to hear negative things this morning. But I thank you there are faithful doctors in the world who are willing to tell us that we've tested positive for cancer, we've tested positive for AIDS, we've tested positive for hepatitis or whatever it is. But in this case, there is a sure cure, and it's your son, Jesus Christ. If any of us in this room today are outside of Christ, would you help them not only to intellectually know it, but to feel in their heart that they are guilty, they are condemned, they are polluted, they're help helpless to save themselves, and unless there is a gracious Savior who they turn to, they have no way of being saved from the wrath to come. Would you be merciful and even save some today who aren't Christians? And for the bulk of us who are believers, would you remind us that well, there are great impediments that we have to face in taking Christ to the world, but that where, where sin has abounded, grace has much more abounded, and we have an overcoming message. Would you encourage us this weekend? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.